Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the player's case for Level Up Advanced 5e. What are the things that you can talk to your players about to tell them about what Level Up Advanced 5e has so they may want to play that? Uh, we have a new portrait mode of the Lazy GM screen available by Patrick Paladin over on Drive RPG. We're going to take a look at that. Ben Riggs, a well-known writer about all things in tabletop role-playing games, had a post on Facebook that got everybody's attention today. We're going to take a look at that. We're going to dive into some of the, the thoughts about that and some things that we can do about it. Today's big DM tip is about making 5e your own on the GM side and how easy that is to do and what that looks like. You may already be doing it, but it's a totally different way of thinking about how we are running our 5e games. And we're going to cover the remainder of our December 2023 questions from the Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive features, a discount on the portrait mode Lazy GM screen, they get Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, they get the City of Arches sourcebook, they get a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, whole tons of stuff, big, big piles of stuff that you get for a very low price to be a subscriber on Patreon. It's a really good deal, and it helps me put on shows like this so to the patrons of sly flourish thank you so much for your support we've been talking a lot i've been talking a lot about level up advanced 5e i've really been diving into the system more i already knew and and really loved the monstrous menagerie from level up advanced 5e it pretty much replaced the monster manual for me and i've been very happy with it i used it yesterday just for a, a, a first level game and i still loved it even though the stat blocks for those are pretty much the same as the stat blocks you get anywhere else it's just a really good book and has a lot of really good stuff in it really really awesome stuff. I hadn't really dug into Trials and Treasure, and I hadn't dug into the Adventurer's Guide as much, and I've been spending more time with those, and I'm thinking that after I finish my Empire of the Ghouls game, I'm going to talk to my players about moving to level up Advanced 5e to try that as a 5e variant. But their big question is like, why? They don't care. They're happy with 5e. They're happy with, with, with you know, 5th edition D&D and, and anything that we added. We definitely added some uh, Cobalt Press material into it, and that seemed to work fine, but why switch the whole core system? So the question is, what advantages, how does it, what does it mean to run um, uh, Level Up Advanced 5e from a player's perspective, from playing it from a player's perspective? Uh, Peter Martin wrote, uh, who's one of the developers of Level Up Advanced 5e, wrote an excellent blog called The Player's Case for Level Up Advanced 5e, and it has a good description about uh, what are the main things that you're going to find in Level Up Advanced 5e that make it kind of different from 5e and the kinds of things that players would be interested in? He talks a lot about the fact that, hey, he likes Level Up Advanced 5e, so it's not exactly a uh, unbiased article, but we're not looking for an unbiased article. We're looking for somebody who is eager to in this system to tell us what's going on. He describes origins and the whole concept of origins and how that's different with heritage and culture and background and destiny. He talks about the difference in classes, that you have the adept instead of the monk, the uh, berserker instead of the barbarian, the herald instead of the paladin, but that they largely fill that and that there is the new warlord. How did the destiny replace his alignment? So this is a really good one if like you're a player and you're like, I hear all these new things in the book, but I want to know like how it relates to what's going on in 5e. This is an excellent one. The classes, he talks about the classes and that they now have a lot more stuff to do in exploration and in role play scenes that they're not just kind of locked into like, oh, the barbarian really only has something to do when you're in a big fight and won't really, you can't take into parties. There's stuff that all of the characters have that enable them to do stuff in all of the different types of play. Obviously a lot to remove some of the spiky bits that create che what he calls cheats builds and builds that are built around one specific thing that do it, you know, you're, you're, your sharpshooter, twin hand crossbow sharpshooter kind of characters and stuff like that. He talks about feats and how he says one of the coolest new additions to level up advanced 5e is the idea of synergy feats. These are like just short of feat chains where you get three feats that each kind of stack on top of one another and give you, you know, help you move your class down a particular area. Obviously, combat maneuvers is a big one. This is the idea that essentially you have spell-like abilities for melee classes that they can do. Lots of different things that they can do, you know, and, and, and different schools of martial techniques. He brings up Book of Nine Swords, which is actually one of the books that changed how I played 3rd edition back when I played 3rd edition, whatever that was, 15 years ago. The Book of Nine Swords was a really interesting way of essentially making a melee class, give melee classes lots of different things they could do other than just attacking with a sword and getting better at attacking with a sword it talks about equipment and equipment properties i haven't really spent a lot of time talking about properties and figuring out how that works so that's something i want to spend new time on it talks about the ability to spend gold strongholds followers buying pets charitable work spell casting services the idea that you can actually buy 
you know, magic items actually have things. And then he describes the expertise mechanic, this idea that when you have expertise in a certain area, it's sort of like getting bardic inspiration or bless when, as you gain levels of expertise, but the expertise die goes up. So it's a really good article and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And I suggest you, you take a look at it. I think it is a good, a good primer. It's, it's big. It's a long, it's a long article, but a good article that really covers what level up advanced 5e brings to 5e if you are interested in running 5e but we're going to get into some things of like you don't actually need to have your players move away from D&D in order for you to kind of change the entire game on your side so that's something that we're going to talk about later in the show but i thought there's an i actually asked for this article i was like i really want to see an article that i can use to talk to my players about what it means to go to level up advanced 5e and how do i sell it to them right if i want them to kind of say hey let's try this new system out how do i sell them on the idea that this is something they may want to look into because one of the things is saying like well they nerfed a bunch of spells well that's not a way to you know they're like why would i want that i don't care but if you say yeah but you got new maneuvers now and there's and classes have new features that make them more interesting in certain situations and these other things like you know and my players are pretty flexible they're like yeah sure if you if you want to try it we'll try it like they're, they're good with it but there's still a bit of like well i don't know why do i you know and most of it i'll be honest most of it is like oh they don't have dna beyond but they do have a really good online tool that helps you look up stuff for your character and stuff that I think is, is, is as good as Dini Beyond is. That's A5E Tools, which is also, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that on the Sly Flourish Patreon, one of the features that I have there is a GM screen, a, a printable GM screen, the kind of GM screen that you would print out and slide into a landscape style GM screen that lets you put inserts in. And you, you could get like those wooden screens that have magnets on them, or they have vinyl ones that have like a little transparency slip thing where you can slip it in there. Or you could do what I do and lay them flat out on your table and put an acrylic sheet over it so that you can use it as your gaming space and not have it as a GM screen in front of you. A lot of people are saying, oh, I like that, but I really love to have a portrait mode and so uh, elizabeth over at patchwork paladin had created a much prettier version of that that's available on drive through rpg you can pick it up five bucks to, to, to pick up the downloadable version of this and that was also in landscape but she also went back and made a portrait version of this so if you have a portrait gm screen or you prefer to have portrait reference pages that you can put in your trapper keeper notebook or into little slip things that you want to just carry around in your in your bag we have portrait mode versions of them, same same material on them, oriented differently. So a whole section on improvising NPCs. This actually isn't in my is in my list. This is something that Elizabeth specifically put into hers, which I think is fantastic. I do have the random names, but NPC characteristics, locations, monuments, and items, magical effects that can resemble spells, your skill and ability check, quick reference, conversation, you know, conversation topics, which is kind of like what are the events that are going on in any given any given town conditions and stress effects which i think are really really useful these are things i look up all the time your improvising monsters list this is all coming from the the work that we did over in forge of foes what are the stats for any challenge rating up to cr20 and what quick monster traits can you throw on those monsters if you want to create monsters on the fly without looking at the table you have the the, the reference here how many monsters can you put in an area of effect if you're running theater of the mind how do you run monster hordes if you're running tons and tons of different monsters that really works and what's your deadly encounter benchmark how do you determine how many monsters might be deadly given the characters in their current power rating all of that on one page is a lot and then these these character overview there's a four five and six page character overviews where you can put down information about the characters to keep track of them from the party members perspective so this whole printable gm screen you get both sides you get horizontal and vertical in print friendly or in full color for that one five dollar purchase patrons of sly flourish get I think $3 off. So if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can use a link that's available on the Patreon to buy this GM screen for three bucks off. This is a deal that I worked out with Patch with 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 the Patchwork Paladin to to offer this to patrons for a low price. And given the price of the Patreon, you're actually saving money just for subscribing for one month. So check that out. Five E Game Master Screen for Lazy GMs. Link in the show notes. And as if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can also find it under your Patreon Rewards page. The Patreon Rewards page has everything. You can go and pick it up and get get it for three dollars off. So really really cool. I, I, the screen is fantastic. I actually want to print. I might try printing the portrait mode. I, I use the landscape mode, but I might try. I might try the portrait mode and see how that works on my table. So here is the print. Here is the the print friendly version as well, which also looks great. This is probably what I will use. Again, you can find a link to the product in the show notes, or you can pick it up on the Patreon page on your Patreon rewards page. So there hasn't been a ton of big TTRPG news over the past few weeks. 
Certainly the MCDM RPG making like $4.6 million for 30,000 people was a really big thing that went, that happened this past week. That was fantastic. But you know, it was the holidays. So not a lot happened. So, but, but one thing that did happen is Ben Riggs, who wrote Slaying the Dragon, a secret, secret history of Dungeons and Dragons, made a post on Facebook. First of all, so you, this war- warning prepare yourselves. This is why I put bookmarks in. You're going to get a lot of ranting in the next section. And I'm going to start off by ranting. Hey, you want to write a really interesting article about tabletop operating games? Don't write it on Facebook. Why why would you say like, you know what I want to do? I want to take this intellectual property that I thought a whole lot about, and I want to feed it right into Mark Zuckerberg's giant advertising box. How about you keep your own material and put it on a blog? What do you think? Right. All right. So that's, that's part number one. Don't write giant posts on Facebook. And EN World copied the thing from Facebook. So you don't have to log into Facebook and get, get Facebook all over you and have to go take a shower. You can go read it directly in EN World. And I'm going to link to the EN World version that you can pick up. It is, so it's one of the rare times where I've seen the TTRPG community coalesce together all to kind of say, wow, this article was so wrong. People from all different walks of the TTRPG industry all came together. Former people that used to work for Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro and people that have never worked there before, people that have worked on independent RPGs, people that worked on big RPGs, everybody sort of came together and basically said, yeah, this is, this is totally wrong. It's totally wrong in so many different ways. And it really is. It's factually incorrect in some places. But in other areas, it's, 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 it's wrong in other areas. So why am I even bringing it up? Normally, I wouldn't even bring it up. But I think that there's some interesting nuggets of thought that we can come to ourselves as the topic comes up. And that's why I, I wanted to talk about it today. And I'm not going to spend a half hour bashing the article. But, and I don't really know anybody who read it and said, well, no, I think he's spot on. The, the most, optim- the most like, complimentary review I heard of the article was if it had been a series of possible questions of possible futures instead of a declarative thing of this is going to happen that might have been better it might have been more thought-provoking in that circumstance and I think that's probably true uh, instead it's kind of almost like walking down the streets with a with a plasterboard that says the end is nigh right and it says the doom of our time approaches right <laughs> like, like sitting in there come on right but it does bring up a question of like okay well what do we what do we mean about this and you know, some people are like oh it's clickbaity and you're like I, I mean i don't i don't believe that i don't think ben riggs wrote this strictly to just get attention i think he probably believes this you know i don't think it's just a hot take for the standpoint of trying to get because he's not like trying to do a shock video on youtube or anything like that. it was a single post on facebook who does that help he wasn't even linking to any i don't remember if he linked any of his work in it and were like hey by the way buy my book maybe maybe he did i don't know but i don't think that that was the intention did it get a lot of attention yes i've heard about this all over all my discord servers i have a bunch of ttrpg discord servers including my own but a bunch of other ones some with industry folks some with you know some that are other industry and boy all of them were like blowing up with oh my god and they were all universally decreased crying this thing like it's it's wrong but i think that there again there are kind of nuggets of thought but a a couple of things that i think i what i'm going to do that's unique is there are a couple things that i think are wrong about it that i don't think i've heard other people say are wrong so i'm going to kind of focus a little bit on those and one of those is big and so what's his premise and i've spent i've been bashing it for now for whatever five minutes i haven't said what it says so the, I, I think, because it is long and kind of goes into a lot of different things, but I think the general premise of the article is that because of the OGL fiasco at the beginning of last year and the fact that so many publishers, both independent publishers and like small publishers and have, have gone on to either build their own new things or set up their own their, you know, their own RPGs, build their own RPGs or their own slice of 5e or whatever. They're separating the TT, the, the, the beauty of the TTRPG community and that all of those groups together, you're end up going to have a net loss of people that are interested in the hobby overall. That before all of us were bolstering up Dungeons and Dragons and the more we bolstered up Dungeons and Dragons, the more new people would also come into Dungeons and Dragons and because it was unified. It was a strong single pillar. But now that we don't trust Hasbro and D&D and we are doing things like Tales of the Valiant and Level Up Advanced 5V and the MCDM RPG and Shadow Dark and all these other things that we are splitting the community up and that because we're splitting it up the overall number of people that will either be coming in or that will stay is going to be overall fewer. I think that's the premise of the article. The problem is that as the hypothesis is written in the article 
And given the metrics that that he's using in it, it is it is unprovable that he's putting in unprovable things that you cannot. We don't know how big it was to begin with, really. And if we don't know how big it was, we don't know if it went down. The only people who might have any kind of valuable metrics to tell us how big it is aren't telling us, and they're certainly not going to tell us if it's going down. So that means it's unprovable. You can't, what would it look like if, if, you know, if this is true, what does that look like? If it is false, what does that look like? Neither of those can be proven. So that's one thing is lack of, lack of, lack of falsifiability right? We can't tell that it's actually true or not. And then there's some specifics of like what the future might look like and good on him for actually putting a list of like the things that actually could happen. The problem is that even though some of these are potentially provable, they are correlation, not causal, which means there could be other reasons why these things could be true that don't have anything to do with the premise of the article. So an example is like sixth edition will not do as well as fifth edition. That's almost certain to be true. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the material or the bifurc or the separation of the community or anything like that it's that 5e was so much more successful than any other version of any other rpg ever that the likelihood that anything else will be as popular is extremely low it doesn't matter how good it is it doesn't matter and nothing nothing matters so just from a pure statistic standpoint the idea of regression to the mean and the central limit theorem mean that any new version of anything is not as likely to be as popular as the most popular version. I had a bet one time. I made a bet with a guy, this, this a fellow, a fellow in the industry who made this statement that the Call of the Netherdeep, the adventure Call of the Netherdeep was going to be the most successful adventure, the most, the, the, the highest sale adventure of any adventure that Wizards of the Coast had ever published. And I was like, I will totally bet against that. And I don't even need to know anything about that. But I know that there were 12 or 14 other adventures and the likelihood that that was the one that was better than all of them when all things were even was low. And I also said, and Chris Estrade has shown how much, how much success it had. And that was proven. And we had like a two year limit on our bet and we went back and looked at it and I was correct. To call it another deep did not sell as well as Curse of Strahd did and some of the other adventures did. I didn't need to know anything about them because it's just unlikely that any one adventure is going to be the top one. And I would say that especially when you see something like Curse of Strahd, this is like Bayesian analysis. The base rate would be all of them are roughly even. So the likelihood that one is higher than all the others isn't likely. However, then you also know the, the Bayesian, you know, bringing a new evidence is Curse of Strahd. I know Curse of Strahd sells really well. The likelihood is they have to beat Curse of Strahd. Any adventure beating Curse of Strahd is unlikely. You know, same is true with the new version of D&D. The likelihood that it is going to be as popular as the old one is not high. And that's because the other one was so much higher than anything had ever been. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. So, the problem was if you make that a metric of, oh, the end is nigh because the new version isn't as popular. By the way, he uses sixth edition in here. It drove everybody bananas. No one liked the idea they called it sixth edition. I called it the 2024 D&D books, like the 2024 revision of the D&D books. We're all going to call it something different, I guess. Sixth edition is not correct. It's really not correct. And the question is like to say that it doesn't sell as well, doesn't show that the end is nigh. It shows that things are regressing to the mean because that's what happens. No MCDM RPG crowdfunding campaign will ever do better than the initial one. That's true for all of these. Anytime somebody puts out an RPG and then puts out another Kickstarter or another crowdfunding campaign for that same RPG, it never does as well as the core. That's also, you know, he's going to be right on both of those, but he's not right for this reason. That's what I mean about it's, it's the causation is wrong. You're right, he's bringing up two metrics where the causation is wrong. Cobalt Press's OGL game, Tales of the Valiant, has been criticized for being too similar to 5e. That's true. For Cobalt Press, for Cobalt Press, I see two futures. Perhaps they will slowly bleed fans in the same way that MCDM will. But if D&D 6th edition is too different, then people really won't want to move on to 5e. Cobalt Press position themselves to be the next Paizo, the Tales of the Valiant. That's not telling us anything. What does that mean? And how do you prove it? Right? There's, there's no actual metric there. We don't know. We know the Kickstarter for Cobalt Press did fine. We know that they have a Game Master Kickstarter coming out. We'll see how that does. But, you know... Cobalt Press is a small company. You can't tell, did it do better? Did it do worse? And why? We don't know why. Causation is really hard to prove. The frequency of million dollar TTRPG Kickstarters will decrease. Well, okay, that's something we can actually measure and figure out. The truth is that wasn't the case last year. And last year was the year where the, we had the OGL fiasco. So is that going to go higher or lower? But again, causation. Is that because everything got bifurcated? Who knows? It could be. There are lots of reasons why that could be occurring. Also, but you can't just keep in mind that Kickstarter, now a lot of things, MCDM, 
their backer kit that was done on backer kit honey cook games had one of their biggest crowdfunded campaigns they've ever run that was also on backer kit so now you have to include backer kit and kickstarter advance at major gaming conventions will plateau this is one of my favorite ones because plateau doesn't mean it drove it dove also we had record highs after the pandemic so again regression to the mean means that maybe they will plateau maybe they'll even be less that doesn't mean the industry's falling apart also if you were to use that metric 2020 and 2021 were terrible terrible years where everything was collapsing because nobody went to conventions oh that's right there's another reason pandemic so why something is occurring figuring out what the causation is is really hard ttrpgs have become less interesting come on now this is where you really get my goat right ttrpgs become less interesting less exciting less creative and despite all the new systems it will grow less diverse as it becomes even harder to make money in ttr that is such horseshit TTRPGs are going through a massive, interesting change. They're some of the coolest RPGs that I'm really excited to see are coming out in the next year. That's ridiculous. The idea that they'll be less interesting, less exciting. First of all, we had really interesting, really exciting TTRPGs that came out of the fact that fourth edition was kind of falling on its ass. So we had things like Fate Core. We had 13th Age. We had Numenera. We had a whole bunch of different kinds of really cool RPGs. Fantasy Age came out then. There's really interesting RPGs that came out of... When, when the RPG industry went low, which means even when it, if it does go low, we're still going to see creative RPGs because creative people love making them and they were been making them for 50 years. So I think that's really dismissive of some of the things that we have seen from TTRPG companies that are really good. It's going to be fantastic. Anyway, so that's kind of my passion. So the things I got from this that make us think about our own relationship with TTRPGs as GMs, a little bit as publishers, but mostly I'm focusing on GMs. But... The two things that I think to me really get my goat about the article is one, the lack of lack of falsifiability. There's no way to show that this is wrong. Right. And a lot of times it could be right for totally the wrong reasons. There's a lack of causal connections. Those 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 are two things that make it kind of this end is nigh, you know, unprovable sort of big statements. But it can get us thinking about things. And that's why I brought it up. Not so much like, like, hey, let me put this article up and I can bash it. By the way, if you want to read the article itself and you want to see a million comments of people who think that the article is a bunch of bunk, I'm going to link to it in the EN World forum posting where you can read the article and see people's comments. There's 338 comments. When I see like something where like in, in less than a week, it got 300 comments. That's where I feel like, ah, this is probably something worth talking about. But there's also some other things. So like, what can we do about it? That's something else the article misses is what can we do about it? Now, I'm going to say some things, and if you've been paying any attention to me over the past year or so, you probably have heard these things again, but I think this is another one where we can hang on to certain things that mean nothing can hurt us. Our relationship with TTRPGs, nothing can hurt us. One is, don't let any one company determine your happiness with TTRPGs, right? That you determine your happiness with TTRPGs. What any any given company does... It's irrelevant. There are ways to strengthen your relationship and the relationship of your group and but your personal relationship with TTRPGs. There are things you can do to strengthen that so that whatever happens in the industry, whether or not he's totally right and oh, it all collapses and nobody's paying any attention anymore or totally wrong and there's this explosion. But I've talked about like what are, to me are like the risks and one of the risks that I really think about is the siloing of D&D. And through electronic means that, and I've talked about this in previous shows and everything like that. But as we know that D&D Beyond put a huge, Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro put a huge investment into D&D Beyond. They're going to want to keep investing in that and that they're going to want to draw more people into this single gravity well of what TTRPGs are, which is D&D Beyond. And they're doing so because it's really sticky, right? So that to me is an actual risk. That idea of like trying to get players out of that walled garden and into the rest of the industry could be hard. We'll see how that's going to go. And I've talked, I've talked about that in previous ones, but not tying ourselves to the success or failure of any given company and just enjoying it. If you like Honey Heist, it doesn't matter that like, you know, 99.999% of uh, people playing TPRPGs don't know what Honey Heist is. By the way, you should go Google, Google Honey Heist. You can get Honey Heist. And just love it. And you and your players sit around playing Honey Heist. There's so many great games that we can get involved with and that we can love. So don't let any one company determine your happiness with D&D. Don't let the industry news. This is, I'm bad at this. I'm very bad at this. Although sometimes it does affect me and sometimes it does not. Don't let the industry news determine your happiness with TTRPGs. In other words, like if sales are up or sales are down or product A did really well or product A did not do well or product A did really well, but you don't like it or product A that you love did poorly. It doesn't matter. If you own it, you own it. You get to do what you 
you want with it. You get to decide what you're going to bring to your game. You get to do what you, what, what you want. That's what really matters. Your own individual relationship with the hobby is what matters because it doesn't matter. And this, I've said it before and I, I, I keep saying it. And sometimes I get new people that go, wow, I never really thought about that like that. I have another hobby. It's a thing I like to do on the side and that, and it's a, it's a bad hobby. It's not one I recommend. I like Marvel Snap. So Marvel Snap is a collectible card game on my phone and I enjoy it. The graphics are really fun. The gameplay is really great. It's a really fun game. It is a total like pay to win, pay to play. You know, I paid more money playing Marvel Snap by like two or three times than all of the other games that I play on any of my other platforms, including like Baldur's Gate and Diablo, because they, they manage to like sink you in and like, oh, if I invest this much, I'll get this stuff. It's really not a great hobby, but I play that game a lot. One of the things that they do, Marvel Snap, uh, Second Dinner is the name of the development company that makes Marvel Snap. They change the cards all the time. So you will sometimes go through a lot of effort, either financially or in effort or both to get a particular card like Galactus and you get the Galactus card and it's like, it's fun and it does stuff and it's really cool and it's big and it means a lot in the lore of the game. And then like, yeah, we're going to nerf it. Yeah, we're going to nerf it again. Yeah, we're going to nerf it again. And then now Galactus sucks. And it's like the likelihood that you even want to play Galactus in any deck is almost zero. They took it and made it useless. And they did it because a lot of people didn't like playing against Galactus. But I invested a lot of time and energy and money into that card. And now I got this dead card sitting in my, in my pile of cards. I can't do anything about that right? Second dinner, I can lobby second dinner and say, hey, could you make Galactus cool again or something like it or just change it completely? I could. And if enough people did it, they could change it. But we all are dependent on what second dinner decides to do to change the games. That isn't true with D&D. With D&D, it doesn't matter what they do. I spent a good chunk of last night and a good chunk of this morning arguing that the solution for silvery barbs isn't to change silvery barbs, but to change our relationship with the game <laughs> that we can't expect wizards of the coast to fix silvery barbs. There's a lot of people who don't even think it needs to be fixed, including people at wizards of the coast who say it doesn't need to be fixed and have said so we could all lobby them to fix it, but that's not the point. The point is we shouldn't depend on Hasbro to fix anything to make the game playable for us. We should decide what kind of game we're running at our table and build our own version of our own RPG from all the component pieces, like even 5e, like I want to play 5e, bring in all the component pieces of 5e so that we can build the kind of game we want at our own table. And we don't need their permission. This isn't like second dinner. I have to lobby them to fix my Galactus card. I don't have to wizard. I don't want to have to depend on Hasbro to do anything. I don't want to depend on any company to have to do anything. I want to be able to take awesome material published by anybody, including Hasbro, and bring it to my table when I want it and eliminate the stuff I don't want. And I think building that approach is really important. And that way, if what Ben Riggs is talking about happens or not, it doesn't matter because the game is still ours and we can still do what we want with it. That's what matters. Strengthen our tools for finding and maintaining great RPG groups. This is something you can work on today. I can work on it today. Make a list, put down a list. If you lost players, who would you talk to to try to replace them with? Where is, what is your ecosystem for cycling players in and out of your groups so that you can have healthy groups for the rest of your life? What is your plan to do that? How are you going to find players to play games online if you can't find players locally? Where are the places where you could find players locally? How can you bring them in? So even if the total pool of players goes down in the world, if you have strengthened your own way of bringing new players in, your game is still healthy because you only need four or five of them and you get four or five regular players, you've got yourself a game. You really only need one, right? You can play a one-on-one -on -one game and it's great. You can play good solo games and it's just you. So really you don't need very much. So even if the pool goes down, and I think that's what everybody's worried about that risk is we've had so many new people coming into the hobby and so many people that, that like I can't, run enough games like i'm running 10 group 10 different sessions a month for three different groups about 18 ish 17 16 17 18 different people and i still have piles of people who are like hey i'd love to play in your game and i can't i ran with a bunch of people yesterday to show them dd i would love to continue a group with them i just don't have the time so now i have maxed out in bandwidth but now if i do see people cycling out i've got people i can talk to say hey would you like to join would you like to jump into the group so what is your process think about this anytime you're bent out of shape about what a company is doing or what the industry news is going. Instead, think about how you can build and maintain your own groups of players for as long as you can. That's what really matters. That matters more than anything else. 
is you have your friends, but what if some of them have to move? What if some of them go away? Who are you going to bring in to replace them? How are you going to do that? What's that ecosystem like? That is a far more valuable thing to spend your time on than worrying about the industry news or pontificating whether or not Ben Riggs is right and the TTRP industry is going to fall all because Wizards of the Coast blew it with the OGL. What are tics and trips, tricks and techniques to help your groups try out different RPGs? This is something I've talked a lot about. If you want to try Shadow Dark, how do you get your group to like Shadow Dark? The best principles and best practices I've seen for this, which I'm going to share with you right now, valuable tips that you can get right now to strengthen your hobby. Build your group together. Get the right people at the table to be playing the game that you want to play. Have them trust you in how you run your games and, and enjoy the games. And then talk to them about spending a session one or two times to try something new. Now, it's not very likely you're going to get them to try something that's super crunchy where they have to spend an entire session learning it. And really, I don't know that there's a lot of room for TTRPGs that have really, really complicated rule sets. But if you work on them a little bit, maybe you schedule a different day to try out an RPG, or maybe you schedule a different group. Write down what are the ways that you can try out other RPGs. Maybe you play a game with fewer players. Maybe you get a different group. When I ask, I'm like, how, do, how did you manage to convince your group to try out a different system? And their answers was, I talked to them about it. I ask them, hey, you want to try out a new system? And most of the time, if these are your friends, the question is, are they playing a game with you because you're running D&D 5th edition? Or are they playing a game with you because they like you as a game master? And if it's the former, you might have trouble. If it's the latter, they're probably okay with whatever game you want to run. Now, probably you're not going to get them to switch all the way from like, oh, we're going to go from D&D straight to this other thing. If they're not interested, they're not interested. If they don't want to play a cyberpunk game, they don't want to play a cyberpunk game. That's fair, right? They're allowed to decide what kind of game they want to play too. But if you want to try some new things out, you know, just try it. Like try Shadow Dark for one or two sessions. I've done it. I have, most of my players love Shadow Dark, but I have some players that don't. So we play, we play some other things. But there's lots of things you can do. So that to me are the important points that I think can come from when we, we hear things like this, not just Ben Riggs's article, but or you know, the post that he made on Facebook, uh, but other areas where we hear about like the trials and tribulations of the TTRPG industry. Oh, what does it mean? Oh, is it going to die? Oh, is Hasbro going to do whatever? Is the game falling apart? You know, blah, 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 blah. We hear all of this kind of stuff. Man, it doesn't matter. And also I would say like, oh no, Hasbro put out a bunch of broken stuff in the 2024 version of D&D and now the game is broken. We can never play again. They're not second dinner. You can play and not use that stuff. You can change the stuff. You can house rule the stuff. You can omit the stuff completely. You can throw the whole system away and play a different system. There's lots of different things you can do. You can say things like, hey, I want to play with the 2014 rules, but I want to use the counter spell from level up advanced 5e because I like that counter spell better. Are we all good? And if you and your players at the table are good with it, that's all you need. You don't need anyone else's permission. You don't need anyone else's improvement. One last point that I, that I want to make with this that I think I've seen now is I think that there are people who want Hasbro to be in control of it. They, even if they're angry with them, they want to have a central authority that they can either push against and fight or blame for their issues instead of recognizing how much control we have over our own hobby. The metaphor that I use all the time, I use this particularly with things like the DMs Guild and with publishers who said like, well, I can't publish stuff because Wizards of the Coast never hired me or never would bring me on as a freelancer. So obviously I'm not a good RPG designer. Is the scene from Blazing Saddles where the bandits are all going to go rush into the, the town and they're like, we need to slow them down. We're not ready. And the guy says, I've got an idea. And he goes out in the middle of a desert and he put, puts a toll booth up in the middle of the desert. There's nothing on the left, nothing on the right. And there's a single toll booth. And you know, 150 rough riders come riding up and they look and they go, what the hell is this? And they go, there's a toll booth in the middle. And it goes, oh man, 10 cents. Anybody got a dime? And they're like, no, somebody's going to have to go back and get a whole barrel of dimes. And then they go back to the town and the town's doing all the stuff. And then they come back and you see all of the rough riders are lined up in a row, each one of them going through the toll booth, dropping a diamond. There's no, they could just ride around it, right? The whole joke is like the, toll, like the toll booth doesn't mean anything. I think we put Hasbro in that position as being a toll booth in the middle of a desert. They're the, you know, we, we're giving them authority of our game. And I think there are people that even when I talk to them and eventually like there are people that I explain this to and after I explain it and I, I feel like I've made it as clear as possible, they're still not on board. And that's cool. Like we all get our own opinions about this, you know, but I feel like there are people who just want that group to be in charge. I'll give another, another metaphor, another example of this. And that was 
Twitter going to X. By the way, I, one of the things I think about with Ben Riggs and, and like the causality is I think Elon Musk buying Twitter and turning it into X did more damage to the TTRPG hobby than anything Hasbro has done short of the OGL, right? That removing the OGL part of it, which I think really did permanently damage the reputation. I think what Elon Musk did with Twitter has shattered the uh, RPG hobby more than anything else because they used to be sort of a place where you could meet like lots of different people that were involved in this hobby. It still wasn't, I think people misrepresented it as the Twitter TTRPG group was the whole community and it totally isn't, right? There was a whole Reddit community. There's a whole Facebook community. There are whole f- communities everywhere else. Tons and tons of people who had never met anybody online that talked about it. But it was one big central community and that that kind of shattered and a bunch of people are still there. And this is where I, I, get, I, I get into that idea of authority. A bunch of people moved from X, now known as Elon Musk's X, to Blue Sky and then immediately started getting upset with the administrators of Blue Sky for things that they were doing. And I was like, or threads, they moved right to threads. And I was like, you just went from one giant authority over your social media experience to another giant authority. Did you not learn? Like you should have just learned what happens when it goes bad. And then they moved from one platform to another that is also has the same problem, which is why I like, I'm, and I'm not trying to be like an elitist about this, but I moved to Mastodon. And that's because I know the dude who runs the Mastodon server I'm on. I can, I can email him, you know? So I moved to a decentralized platform because now I've got a way that I can move from one platform to the other. I can, I can figure this out. Me being, I don't want to be on centralized platforms anymore, but the idea that there were some people who I really feel want an authority to either bash or fight against or be upset about or put all of their woes upon. And I think that's happening in Hasbro as well, that there are people who don't want to recognize how wide open the TTRPG field is. They just want to point at Hasbro and say, well, they're the ones in charge and I don't like what they're doing. And yeah, right. I think that's dangerous too. Now, maybe I'm being very judgmental about that. I could be very judgmental. And I'm sure there, there, there are whole aspects. I've been very, very privileged in this community. I've had a really good string of good luck over the past 15 years while I've been involved in this. And so maybe it's just, it's very easy for me to say stuff like that and not recognize that there are people who are going through real hard issues, hard times in their lives, difficulty getting into the industry any other way. There's lots of areas where that's true. I don't think Hasbro is the answer to your problem. I don't think threads is the answer to your problem. I don't think putting your faith in another giant corporation whose goals are not your benefit is not the way to go. <laughs> like I'm pretty, I feel pretty confident about that, but I recognize that like it's easier for me to you know, easier said than done. But I do one thing. I mean, on the X side is like, I walked away from a 50,000 subscriber Twitter account and left it completely. And now I'm over and I got 2000 people on Mastodon. I don't care. And I'm much happier for it. So if you're like, oh, I have this whole, you know, interconnected relationship that I can't step away from. I mean, I did. Now, granted, my relationship with it was less. So maybe you're like, oh, my friends are there and I lose my friends if I don't go. I've lost friends. I haven't lost friends. I've lost touch with friends that were, that still spend their time over there. But I have to make that choice. Anyway, that is, um, I think, all I need to say about Ben Riggs and, and his thing. One of the really interesting things about 5th edition, how we run it, is and this is something I've been started to think about recently is the idea that like two 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 kind of cases that are true. One, the DM's game, the GM's game is different than the player's game. That what we're doing, I know this is like oh Captain Obvious, thank you. But like the kind of game that we're playing as a GM is really different than the kind of game players are playing. Right? There was this old joke of like, you know, a bassist and a guitarist never really paid attention to what the other one was doing. They're like you don't, you know, guitarists don't talk to the bassist. Don't do that. Yeah, you're both playing the same song, but you're doing totally different things. And that idea of like the GM side of it, I've often said like, I don't really pay attention to what's going on on the player side, right? I'm, I'm worried about what the GM side is. I don't in nitpick about their characters. I don't, you know, rarely do I kind of dive in and do things. Like yesterday I had it where a guy who was brand new was going to do a move. And I was like, you know, you have a dragon breath. You could actually move over here and hit those guys with dragon breath. How's that sound? I'm trying to say like, that's an option that you might not have known about. And he didn't, he was a brand new player. And he's like, yeah, I definitely want to do that. But generally speaking, it's like we're playing a different kind of game. It's almost like we're playing two different games at the table, the game that the GM is playing and the games that the players are playing. Now we're all mixing together and obviously we have sort of one shared story and I'm not losing fact of that, but there is this idea that we're playing a different kind of game. The other 
thing is because of that, because of the idea that the GM side is just fundamentally different than what the players are doing, we can change all kinds of stuff on the GM side that doesn't affect the player side or ideally only affects it in a positive way. What is an, a simple example of this is if you think about it, the player would have like a copy of the D&D 2014 Players Handbook, and that's what they're using to run their D&D character during a 5th edition D&D game. And on our side, we have the D&D 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide and the D&D 5th edition player, or Monster Manual. And we are using the Dungeon Master's Guide to help us build adventures, and we're using the Monster Manual to come up with interesting monsters and use those stat blocks for those monsters. All of those components, those three books, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual are all independent of one another. You can pull out any one of those and replace it with a different one and the game still runs. And I have done this and many people have done this that I'm just going to take that 2014 monster manual set it aside and I'm going to take in this new shiny flea mortals that just came out and I'm going to open up flea mortals and now I'm running mummies that zip around and punch people in the face repeatedly and hobgoblins that are on fire running around people burning them up with fire. And minion, a hundred minions chasing after the characters and huge solo monsters that are just wrecking the world. And they're like, and the player side, they're like, what the hell? What are these guys about? Like, I have players like, is that a legendary action? I'm like, no, that is a villain action. They're like, what's a villain action? I'm like, that's an action that they can do between anyone else's turn, but they can only do it once. But it hits like a nuclear bomb. And they're like, oh, right. And so that... You can replace that. And then you could say, I'm going to take Flea Mortals and I'm going to set that aside. And I'm going to pull in, you know, a, a fine book called Forge of Foes. And now I don't even need monster stat blocks. I have tables and powers that I can use during the game. This book is so beautiful. Is it? It's totally wrong for me to like love my own book, but I love this book so much. But it's a whole different way of thinking about how you run monsters in your fifth edition game. And you could run it on your site. And I've done this. I've, I've replaced it. And then sometimes I've had like some monsters in a battle are from Fleet Mortals. Another set of monsters are from Forge of Foes. And some are just normal monsters. And I'm like, can you tell which are which? And like, no, not really. Like lots of crazy stuff was happening. But I couldn't tell you which one was which book. Like I didn't see a stylistic difference so much that I couldn't tell which one was which. And that's because you can flop all of these different things out. The same is true with the Dungeon Master's Guide. You could say, hey, you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide has the kind of stuff in it. And also it is the least liked book of the three core books. I think that's certainly true. A lot of people are not fans of the Dungeon Master's Guide. I actually think it's not as bad as we think it is. I think it's actually not, it's not, it's not bad. It's not organized and it doesn't help you be a good GM, I don't think. But it gives you a lot of tools. It gives you a lot of capabilities, lots of tables, and lots of ways to kind of build adventures. But obviously, there are people who have want different things and have different things. And that's where you can say, like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out the Dungeon Master's Guide, and I'm going to replace it with Level Up Advanced 5e's Trials and Treasure Book, which is a, essentially their Dungeon Master's Guide. And I'm going to put other components in the game in this for things like journey activities or random encounter tables or interesting environments that the characters are exploring or ways to buy magic items or better downtime rules. All kinds of stuff that exists in this book, which is an excellent, excellent book that I can bring right into my game. And I don't even have to ask the players at my table for permission. I can just do it. I can just add this stuff in the same way that I can add monsters from any monster book and drop them into my game. I don't have to get anybody's permission to flop out these pieces, which means the GM side of the table is ours to do whatever we want with, right? We can say, sure, I'm going to use stuff from the Dungeon Master's Guide, or this is show and tell time, by the way, or I can use Uncharted Journeys to handle exploration ideas, right? Great big, thick book, hundreds, of, it's like 300 pages. It's big. It's bigger. It's as big as the Dungeon Master's Guide is. Not quite. Yeah, it's about 288 pages. Great big book offering different ideas and styles and encounters to, in, in, to make travel more interesting in your games. You can just drop this in. Now, I don't think I'm saying anything that's a big surprise to people. I think it's about how we think about it that really changes. That when we think about the game that we're playing... On the GM side, I, I, so I showed earlier, I showed Patrick Paladin's uh, portrait mode uh, lazy GM screen 
inserts. You can pretty much just use those and run sessions of your game. It's got pretty much everything you need and just three or four things. You can use the Lazy DMs Companion to help you build entire campaigns. You can use millions of tables from Raging Swan for, for the stuff that, that Raging Swan makes in your games. We've never really thought of it this way when we do homebrew adventures, or if we say like, oh, I'm going to run Dungeons of Drakenheim, that I'm making my own 5e on my side. But that's really what we're doing. We are building 5e on our side, however we want it, however we think it will be most fun for us and the players at our table. So the tip that I'm really offering here is just to think about your game differently. Think about your game as on, on your side of the table, on behind your screen, what you're running when you're running at the table. You can flip and flop and pull out stuff and drop stuff in and try stuff and homebrew your own stuff or pick up one idea that you read on a blog somewhere. There's so much stuff that you can do on the GM side to change how the game operates, the tools you use, physical tools, what kind of how you use your dice, your dice tower, Dwarven Forge drawable dry erase mats, little tile cards, stand up 2D, 2.5D pawns for your miniatures. All of these things you can just try to build the kind of game you want to build on your side. And the nice thing about that is you can do all of that stuff and not really have to affect your players. That the world, the game that they're playing is going to be different on their side. They're going to see different monsters. They're going to see new tools and accessories. They're going to run different adventures. All these different things are going to change on from, from the, how they interact with it. But from the rules that they understand, they could just be sitting there with the 2014 version of the player's handbook, the Dungeon D&D player's handbook. And still enjoying this whole new world that you're be able, you can build out with your monsters from Flea Mortals and your ad hoc monsters from Forge of Foes and your weird adventure builds that you got from the Lazy DMs Companion and journey rules that you picked up from Uncharted Journeys and new ways to fund the creation of magic items from Trials and Treasure. All of these different ways that they can interact with the game and it doesn't have to change on their side. So that to me is a really, really powerful way of thinking about just, and this is specific to 5e, we're not even getting into other RPGs, but just in, the, in, in, in how you're able to change things on the GM side of 5e, I think it really, it fills, it fills me with a lot of hope and a lot of joy. It makes me really happy to know that we can munge around on that side of it as much as we want, trying new things in and out, trying different products in and out, finding ideas and bringing them in and change all that stuff. I would say the only, the only sort of warning here is make sure that you're open to that. Make sure that you are not so focused on the tools that you use that the only way you can incorporate uh, those things is either paying a lot of money or you, you can't because you're in you're you're wired into a particular platform that doesn't allow it. And I'm just bashing on D&D Beyond here either. Like if you're just so wired into Roll20, but Roll20 doesn't have that monster book you really love. Learn how to run monsters just from anything, from a PDF or from a physical book. Stay flexible and make sure that your approach towards the game is flexible enough to be able to drop in all of these things and not be dependent upon like it only i can only use it if it's ever compatible with x this like tool x you don't want to have a situation like that because then you are limiting yourself severely to the wide range of different things that are out there of course, we want to keep communication open with our players. So as we're changing this kinds of things, it probably behooves us to let our players know. For example, if you're running a action-oriented boss monster from Flea Mortals, it can help you to explain what the general mechanics are for that monster so that players understand what's happening. It's kind of fun when they're like, I don't know what's going on. In the same way that you'd want to explain that a monster is a legendary monster so they're not blowing a bunch of spells that they normally blow. I know there's probably GMs that are like, no, don't ever tell them anything. I believe in sharing information as much as possible. I think in the same way you could explain how Flea Mortals minions work. You can explain how Flea Mortals legendary monsters work. They're, they're action-oriented monsters work. So that the players get an idea of what is going on on that other side. So I'm not saying that you can keep them completely in the dark. But the main thing is you can change huge pieces of your side of it. And it isn't going to change their... The, the player's approach towards the game that much. Every month on the Sly Flares Patreon, we do a Q&A. And today we're going to do the final questions from the December 2023. The final 2023 questions for the Patreon Q&A. A new Patreon Q&A for January will be going up this coming Thursday. Jason K says, most of my combats boil down to last man standing fights to the death. I just have a hard time remembering to implement other goals or behaviors for my NPCs in combat. Do you have any suggestions on how to keep other behaviors in mind so that my combats feel differently and possibly end differently? I do. It is a fine art that has existed for thousands of years called write things down. Take a three by five card and a pen 
and write down 10 ways that a battle might end without one side just defeating the other. Try to keep them general enough that you think you could reskin them, those ideas, into things, into events that you want to have there. I'll just, I'm going to blurt a few off the top of my head, but it's really a good exercise for you. It's a really good exercise for all GMs to say like, what are 10 ways that I can have a battle end early? An easy one that I use all the time is when the boss is defeated, the minions are defeated. That's a really easy one. If you, especially like, imagine a necromancer who has a bunch of skeletons. You kill the necromancer, all the skeletons are destroyed. You manage to destroy the cult fanatic in the basement uh, of Starsong Tower. The zombies that were protecting them are also equally destroyed. It's really easy. I've never seen players who are upset about the fact that the minions are destroyed. Most everybody's like, yeah, once we've done that, we, 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 we solve it. Destroying or manipulating or changing or restoring an object Hey, there's this sphere in the center of the room. The sphere is creating waves of energy that are giving all of these bad guys all these powers. If you can destroy the sphere, their powers go down and maybe they fall over or they give up or whatever. They, they are removed. They are, the sphere absorbs them all and they are all destroyed. What are ways, yeah, that's an easy one. Another one is there's one that a radiant sphere that is inactive, but when you activate it, waves of energy go roaring out and destroy undead or destroy shadows or anything else. So manipulating objects in the game. And that's a really easy, very useful template that you can manipulate many different ways of the manipulate an object template can be reflavored in so many different ways, but it's still a good way of saying like, hey, this is how a battle is going to end early. Recovering somebody or killing somebody. Our job isn't to kill everybody in this place. It's only to kill the bandit leader. If the bandit leader is dead, then a new bandit leader will go in charge who's actually on our side. That is a very easy, you know, like, hey, we don't have to fight everybody. We just have to get rid of that guy and then get out. Rescuing a hostage. We need to go in. We need to grab somebody. We need to get out if we can go there and grab them we can get out or freeing somebody i was playing a Baldur's gate three session yesterday where the main it seemed i don't know if it was the main goal but something that seriously helped was there was an npc who was trapped if you can go over and untrap the npc it changes the whole course of the battle so maybe you it's it's not about you know think about like football it's not a matter of smashing up against all the other people it's a matter of getting this thing over to that place if i can get this thing over to that place the rest of it doesn't matter those are those are ways. So those are just a few examples, but there are many others. And what I would really suggest you you're specifically asking, how do you keep these suggestions and behaviors in mind? So you can do this during your prep is think about if you know that you're going to have big encounters, what are some of the ways that that encounter could end early? But if you're improvising your encounters on the fly, one thing you could do is create a get a three by five card or an index card and write down 10 general ways that battles could end early. Take that and keep that in front of you while you're running your game. Ken W says, I'm running a Shadow Dark campaign and can't seem to get the treasure amounts right. Is there a suggested treasure level in gold for each level? At first level, I think I gave too much gold because the party caroused their way to second level after only one significant planned encounter or horde. That is total from what I understand. So the answer is no. There is no set amount of treasure that you're expected to get. That's the, how this game works. This game, Shadow Dark, one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand about Shadow Dark, took me some time to understand about Shadow Dark. The whole game is built on randomness. The game is very, very random, which actually can drive people a bit bananas. But it's very, the whole game, like from the character that you pick, the abilities that you've got, from the, the progression of the characters to the treasure to the monsters, all that stuff is very, very random. And in many cases, like even on the treasure tables that they have, the treasure on the low side of the table is much less valuable than the treasure on the high side of the table. But there isn't really a right amount of treasure. Instead, you're, the, the, the book does offer guidance for when you would drop treasures in and then you roll on the treasure tables and that what you roll on there they get. I think if they got a lot of treasure and they went to town and caroused and got to second level, that sounds like they're probably doing it right. I don't think they should spend a lot of time at first level. I'm not, first level is meant to be pretty quick. That's why each level goes up you know, is a multiplier of the previous level, right? It's, you know, 10 experience to get to second, 20 experience to get to third, 30 experience to get to fourth, and so on. It gets harder to level up as you go, but they're really not intended to be at first level for very long. So the idea that they got some gold and they caroused and then they got to second level is not there. But the main thing to understand is that there isn't a suggested level of treasure in the same way that there isn't really a suggested levels for monsters. There is some monster encounter guidelines in there. They are very, very loose and they're intended to basically just say, hey, just to get an idea of what the power level differentiation is between monsters and characters. And that's not very easy because monsters are level based and it turns out a level one monster is the equivalent of a level one character. 
Nick R says, I'm really interested in the user experience of adventures for GMs at the table. It seems a lot of published 5e adventures have the same kinds of issues that make them difficult to run at the table. Initial adventure hooks that are misaligned with the overall campaign, like Descent to Davernus, inadequate alignment of the goals, uh, motivations of the characters and the campaign due to the individual adventures and quests within the adventure, dino racing in the, during the Death's Curse, prescriptive encounters that assume things will happen a certain way, Dragon, dragon Heist Chase, descriptions that are hard to reference at the table, Scarlet Citadel, etc., what approaches or tricks to how adventures or settings are presented have you seen that make them easier to run? And what RPG designers or publishers would you recommend who are doing this exceptionally well or experimenting in this area? Two examples come off the top of my head that I would I would recommend. And that would be the adventures of Kelsey Dion. We were just talking about Shadow Dark. Kelsey Dion over an Arcane Library also makes a bunch of 5e adventures, and she has designed them very much to be very easy to run, easy to parse, and to read. So I would definitely, if you're interested in understanding those i would look at those uh other adventures that i would look at would be like raging swan uh, i'm running shadowed keep on the borderlands and that is a very well tested very well built adventure that has lots of interesting stuff that hits that kind of they call it an old school feel but really like if you look at old school adventures they weren't written like this either so i think that they how they are designed i think is a, a really good examples but one thing that i think is true is that, and this is something that I, I believe, not other people don't. I don't think there is an ideal adventure design. I don't think that there is an adventure design that, that serves everyone the way that they want to be served. I think that actually trying to make perfect adventures is an intractable problem. And that's because different people want different things from the adventures that they pick up. And some people want more prescriptive adventures and scene-based adventures that are more like a book, like a choose-your-own-adventure book, where you're heading the same direction regardless. But but here's, And then other people want like more open-ended campaign stuff. One thing that's very true about how Wizards of the Coast had been publishing their D&D adventures is that they were experimenting with them. I actually had the opportunity to give this hypothesis to Chris Perkins. And he said, yes. <laughs> and that was that with the types of event that was up through, I think the up through Tomb of Annihilation. I talked to him around the time Tomb of Annihilation came out, pre, pre-Descent to Navernus. And I said, like, are you, you're, you're trying out all these different styles, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're trying out different styles. We try to see which ones serve the best. But they were doing wide experiments from linear adventures like Tyranny of Dragons, sort of, pseudo sandbox adventures like out of the abyss now granted some of these weren't even written by wizards of the coast they were written by third-party producers that then uh, they were they were freelanced to other uh, groups Cobalt press actually wrote tyranny of dragons for example i don't know if people know that more sandboxy style dungeon crawly sort of adventures like princes of the apocalypse and then sort of more wide-ranging sandboxy things like Storm King's Thunder, which was super wide, super huge sandbox, more refined sandboxes like Curse of Strahd, back to kind of small episodic linear adventures like uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist and so on. So they tried all kinds of different things. And what's really funny and what I, some friends of mine and I were kind of laughing about is it doesn't appear that they learned from all that. <laughs> Right, that they're, I mean, there, there's some definitely great adventures that have come out. I still say that, like, Wild Beyond the Witchlight was really, really good. It's a more linear adventure, but it was like linear, but it had wide things where you got to learn a lot. And and I I ran it and I really enjoyed it, you know. And then you have other ones that are more sort of like railroady style adventures, at least from what I read. I didn't run it, so I can't really say. But like, I'll, I'll give an example of a good railroady adventure that I thought worked really well, which was Planescape. Or no, sorry, Spelljammer. Spelljammer's adventure, Light of Zaraxxus, I ran it and I really liked it. But then I looked at the one at Planescape and w- there was one element of Planescape that really, really bothered me that I was like, okay, I'm, I, I don't even think I want to run this because I don't even know how I would fix that easily. And it kind of wrecks the rest of it, which is the idea, and this is a big spoiler, but like, I almost want to spoil it because... I think I would be upset if I learned after playing it that this was the case. The main quest giver is the bad guy. So I can spoil, if you can spoil in four words, that's pretty bad. Although I guess you can spoil in two annihilation in four words and Chris Perkins did and it ruined my game because my wife heard it and then she knew what was going on. So, so there, there, I don't think, my, my main point is I don't think that there is an ideal adventure design. I think it's good. And if we're thinking about adventure designs and we're thinking about it, like read lots of adventures from lots of different groups. I think when you look at something like Dungeons of Drakenheim, where it's like, this is clearly an adventure book written by GMs for GMs. Same way with Raging Swans, Shadowkeep of the Borderlands. Like that's clearly like, this is somebody who knew what they wanted if they were in the seat of somebody running it. I think that there's a lot of design that you can get from that. So I, I trying to find an ideal one, I don't think is 
going to be successful. But I think learning from a lot of different designs and finding ones that you think can work really well, I think can work really well. Michael G says, I had a player who is a fellow DM ask about my prep. Oh, this is a good one. They're all good ones, but yeah. I had a player who is a fellow DM ask me about my prep, specifically commenting on how cool it was that they discovered information about the cult from random graffiti on an alley and how I could have predicted that they might have looked at that wall. I introduced him to the concepts of secrets and clues and he was appalled. He basically said that having the information wherever the players may look is the equivalent of quantum, quantum ogres. I'm kicking myself because I never give players a peek behind the screen. And, I, and the only reason I did was because I was talking DM to DM and not player to player. Is he right? I'm thinking it doesn't really matter, but I kind of just wanted to spark the topic. Really good question. And there are definitely certain kind of players and GMs where the cons, the idea that the, that the GM is making things up as you go bothers them. And I, I would, I would expect that GMs who are like that are more game focused GMs, less story focused and more game focused GMs who, and I don't just mean like power gamey combat tactical folks. I mean, like, if there's a puzzle, there's only one solution and it's up to them to find the puzzle. And I think that there are players who prefer that style until they butt up against it and then they don't like it. So an example is if you say to somebody, well, I'm going to manipulate this puzzle so that eventually you'll be able to succeed at it regardless of what you do. And you told them that they'd be like, well, this sucks. Why am I even doing this? That's boring. If, however, you say, well, there's a puzzle and there's only one way to solve it. And if you fail to look at the one thing and you don't know what it is, you're going to be stuck here at this cell wall and you're never going to learn what's on the other side. Well, they're going to hate that too. So yeah, we're definitely doing some man behind the curtain kind of stuff here where we are going to kind of change things up. We are going to offer multiple paths and we, the, the players are going to get through, but sometimes they want to succeed and you want them to struggle, but also like you're eliminating the idea that they might come up with really interesting ideas that you think really cool for the story that you didn't think up. If you're not willing to change things because of that, you're going to lose some of that stuff. So I'm not surprised that there are even like players and GMs who, if they learned, Oh, that just, you know, I just threw that in there. Uh, at that moment are like, well, that sucks because that means the world isn't this solid place. Players don't want to know that the world isn't a solid place, but if they think about it at all, they're gonna, they'll, they'll know that it isn't right. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's one of these, like you need to trick yourself into thinking about the world, like a solid place, even with the recognition that your GM is probably changing things behind the curtain. And that's okay. It's like what hits the tables, what really happens and everything else is, is, is fuzzy. So, and anybody that's not aware of the idea of quantum ogres, quantum ogres is the idea that you have an encounter with like three ogres in the woods and the characters go down a path. They run into the same three ogres. If they go into the woods, they run into the same three ogres that the ogres are there only when the characters witness them has the quantum state, right? They, the ogres appearance is only there because of the visual of the characters, the view of the characters falling upon them. Another example, yeah, I like to bring up Schrodinger's Trap, right? That I brought this up with some new players that I was playing with yesterday. I had a really great opportunity to play with some new players yesterday. And then we talk about traps and they said like, how exactly does it work like with, a, with like detecting traps and stuff? And I said, the way it works is you go up to a door and if you try to look for a trap, that means there's a trap, right? Because you looked for it. And if there is, if you look for a trap and there's really a trap, if you try to make a perception check to locate the trap and fail, then there absolutely is a trap, right? And it was, I was joking, of course, because I don't, I don't do that. Instead, I go, was well, it make sense that there's a trap on this door? And I determined there's a trap on the door right before the characters come to the door and say, would there be a trap? And sometimes it's like, no, because they go in and out of this door all the time, right? You're going to kill, you're, you and your minions are going to be killed if you trap doors that you're going through all the time. So like, why would you put a trap on a particular door? But your, your super fancy vault that's holding Orcus's wand, that's probably trapped. So yeah. Some people get upset about this. And, and you know, my whole idea of the dials of monster difficulty, for example, the idea that you might tune hit points in the middle of a fight definitely chaps some people's asses because they're like, now you're just manipulating game mechanics. So what's the point of even having hit points if you're going to manipulate them? And I argue you generally don't, but you manipulate them if it's going to make the game more fun right? If the game itself is going to be more enjoyable, then it's worthwhile. Almost always that means lowering the hit points so that you can get the creatures off the table because it's no longer there. We talked earlier about the idea of undead that are destroyed when a main boss is destroyed. 
you could decide maybe that's not true. The battle would be too easy or too short and they wouldn't get a chance to really show off their abilities and clearly they're having fun. So I'm going to have the zombies stick around. Like you get to decide that, right? And that's the equivalent of sort of changing hit points in the battle. But the question is, are you doing it because the game is going to be more fun or not? Now for the player that you have who now knows that you throw these secrets and clues, I mean... I don't, I don't know how like you would convince them otherwise. And now the question is like, are they sitting there with their arms crossed the whole time? Every time they learn a new piece of information, but they might learn, they might figure out that, Oh wait, this, this still is cool. The question that I would put in is like, even if you know, I'm doing it that way, your character doesn't and think about what your character would do. And if you get focused on what your character would do in that circumstance, I think that can, that can really work. So really interesting question. And, and yeah, I'm really, really, really glad to hear it. Friends. I want to thank you all for joining me on the first Lazy RPG Talk Show of 2024. It's going to be an awesome year. I can't, I'm really looking forward to all the stuff that we've got ahead. If you enjoyed this show and you want to get more stuff like this from me, the best way to do so is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. There is a link in the show notes and you get a free adventure generator for signing up. And every week you get an RPG related newsletter, which has links to all the other things I do. Plus like an RPG related topic of the week. Really fun newsletter people really like it and absolutely free you can also subscribe to me on patreon support me on patreon you get access to all kinds of exclusive stuff like the q a a dedicated discord server tons of material to run for your rpgs tons of tools to help you run your rpgs all different kinds of stuff that patrons get for a very very low price and it helps support my show and you can pick up any of my books including forge of foes return of the lazy dungeon master lazy games workbook lazy games companion and all the fantastic books coffee cups t-shirts calendars they're all available on the sly flourish bookstore you can find a link to the sly flourish bookstore in the notes thank you so much have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.